I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today on this episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, we're talking with Erin Castro. She's an associate professor of higher education at the University of Utah and co-director of the University of Utah's Prison Education Project that supports social transformation and education equity through on-site higher ed, empirical research, and advocacy. Uh, Professor, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Erin, I was hoping you could kind of give me a little bit of background about yourself. Turns out we're both from uh, uh, my home state of Illinois, and that um, you, how you came to be here in Utah and, and begin uh, the Utah Prison Education Project. Absolutely. Um, you know, it kind of happened accidentally. When I was a graduate student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, I started volunteering with a project called the Education Justice Project. And I spent about three years teaching, volunteering, um, just getting to know students and trying to be as helpful as I possibly could. And what I didn't realize then that I know now is that that was really preparing me to do this work and to, to see firsthand how a university can engage meaningfully um, with a prison or a jail. It's not easy work. Um, these are two institutions that often don't directly talk to each other. Um, and so, you know, as a graduate student, I was able to kind of get a sense of how to move these large systems in ways that would ultimately provide opportunity for students. And I finished a dissertation and two months later, drove across the country with my two cats and uh, <laughs> took a job at the University of Utah. And, you know, that first year I thought I would be here a year and, you know, head out, but I loved it here. And um, in about 2013, I started having conversations with administrators and leaders on campus, because at that time I was actually quite shocked to learn that there was no college programming in Draper Prison or in Gunnison, um, no on-site college programming. And so then I reached out to the Department of Corrections in 2013 and started having some conversations with them about the viability and interest. And it took us about three years to get up and running, and we launched our first on-site class in 2017. When you say on-site, what do you mean by that? It's a great question. So right now, um, if you want to participate in higher education during incarceration in the United States, you have very few options. Now, there's only about 300 colleges and universities across the US that provide some sort of higher education, whether that is face-to-face, -face, so on-site people who are not incarcerated traveling into the prison, teaching classes, running workshops, et cetera, which is what we do, um, providing correspondence or print-based classes, some hybrid combination of the two, some are able to access some limited restricted online, um, and so what we really think is important as a project is that because of the nature of incarceration, it's really important for us to get into the prison and establish relationships with people. Um, and to the extent that we possibly can conduct our classes face to face. 
Well, and so why do you think that's important? It's just, it just a different technique, uh, a personal connection makes a difference in people's interest or what they retain. I mean, I guess, why, why would that make a difference to be there in person? Sure. No, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think part of this just really goes back to the, the isolation of nature of incarceration. And so um, people who are incarcerated do not have access to other people. Um, and they're often, you know, for a majority of the programs across the U.S. that are, you know, print-based, for example, you get a packet, it gets mailed to you along with your books. You sit in your cell or in the rec area, you complete all of your um, coursework in isolation without direct connection or contact with peers um, or with an instructor. And just because of the um, ways that incarcerated people are restricted in their ability to connect with other people, we just feel like it's really important um, that we're able to connect on that level in front of each other, able to kind of read each other's body language, able to you know interact with each other as humans um, in the way that we would on campus. Yeah. You know, and so if if we're not totally against online learning, but in my kind of ideal world, it would never supplant face-to-face -face instruction. So uh, I, I feel like you're kind of walking around a little bit because there's this uh, background noise I'm trying to deal with. Um, when, when, yeah, sorry. When... I, that will stop in about two minutes. So um, when we when you're dealing with these uh, the people who want to pursue their uh, higher, higher education, what kind of prisoners are we talking about? So we typically have we're in three facilities in in the prison, and we distribute. Um, applications to anyone who wants or is interested in applying. During this time, we hold information sessions, usually in February of each year. And we give applicants about six weeks to fill out their applications. And then we go back to the prison working with our um, officers to collect those applications. Our team then anonymizes all those applications and then sends them out to um, a faculty review panel um, comprised of faculty at the University of Utah who volunteer with our project um, to get them scored. Um, and then the co-director and I, um, Cindy Fierros, we uh, go through the applications to do the final admissions screening. When we, uh, when we come back, we'll have some more discussion on how it is that, you know, do you get feedback from people who wonder, should this kind of uh, project be available to people who are incarcerated? Uh, we're speaking today with Erin uh, Castro. She is an associate professor of higher education at the University of Utah and co-director of the new Utah Prison Education Project that supports social transformation and education equity through on-site ed higher ed and empirical research and advocacy. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Welcome back to Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. On this episode, we're speaking with Professor Erin Castro. She is a, a educator at the University of Utah in higher education, and uh, she also is a co-director of the U University of Utah's Prison Education Project, which supports uh, education equity through on-site higher ed, empirical research, and advocacy. Uh, Professor, 
Amy has kind of a, a question for you that I think a lot of people uh, have in mind uh, regarding uh, accessibility for higher ed. Yeah, I covered corrections for about six years and one of the things that anytime I did any stories on a higher education or post-secondary education, even trade uh, training offered at the prison, um, I would get questions about why do people deserve education? Do they pay for it? Because they've been cr convicted, why should they get more benefits when it comes to access to education than people living on the outside who haven't committed a crime? And, and I just wondered if you had run into that sentiment and what your thoughts were. Oh, yes, we run into that sentiment. Um, I have many thoughts. I think it's a, it's, it doesn't appear to be a complex question, but I, I really think it is because it's based on a um, kind of normalization of prisons and punishment. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, if you think about, if we just step back a minute and look at the U.S., you know, we have 2.2 million people behind bars. Um, we are the largest incarcerator in the world, um, and that's not including people who are um, on, under some kind of state supervision, so um, house arrest, parole, probation, electronic monitoring. And so just the sheer volume of, of people who are caught up in the punishment system, I think, deserves some careful rethinking and attention. You know, that being said, I, I also want to point out that this is not you know, an equitable distribution. Um, incarceration targets uh, vulnerable populations, folks of color, folks living in poverty, uh, folks who have um, histories of trauma, drug abuse, um, addiction. And we know from um, just re longitudinal research over the last 10 years, over three quarters of the people who are arrested at the time of arrest do not have a high school diploma. And so if we were to just step back for a second and look at this at a large scale and say, why is it that the majority of people who are locked up in this country um, don't have a high school diploma, um, suffer from a range of uh, potentially kind of mental uh, challenges and have not had access to viable, real um, opportunities, including economic opportunities, then I think we've got to ask a slightly different question, which is, what is the path forward here? And I get that that's difficult. I get that that's a really, for some people, a very hard way to think about, particularly those who are victims of violence themselves. Um, but I think for me, the way that I approach this work is that um, education is a fundamental human right. And regardless of, of you know, why someone is in prison um, and whether you think that that's actually going to solve whatever problem um, that, that, that it's designed to solve, um, we have to have some way forward. And, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion about for-profit prisons and, um, you know, uh, exploitation of labor. And it's not that those things aren't true. But the vast majority of people inside prison are bored. There's just simply not enough programming um, and not enough meaningful opportunities for engagement. And I think, you know, in a state like Utah, where we have two state prisons, a number of county jails, we have juvenile detention facilities, folks scattered across all those facilities, 95% will be released. Um, uh, you know, my, I guess my 
my thought, my follow-up on that, I, I mean, the 95% release to me is the best argument for making programming available. But when you're talking about in-person programming, does that narrow down the amount of people who can be helped? Or does it change the quality of the help that people who are involved in the program get? Hey, Amy, can you say that again? I didn't quite hear you. Oh, sorry. Um, you know, the 95% of people being released to me is one of the best and biggest arguments for offering more programming, not less programming. Yeah. Um, and I guess I, my question is, if you're doing in-person classes and an in-person program, does it, you say people are scattered in county jails and there's different uh, prison facilities in the state. Does that then narrow the amount of people who can benefit from the program um, if it is an in-person program or does it improve the quality for the people who are involved in the program? Or maybe it's both, I don't know. I think it's both. Okay. Um, you know, I think in an ideal world and what I'd really love to see, um, and not even an ideal world, this is totally achievable, particularly in this state, is that we get restricted internet access in all facilities. Yeah. And, you know, that way, and we could set up hybrid courses so that, you know, part, part of the content is delivered online. Um, another part of the content is delivered face-to-face, -face, um, you know, being really meaningful about, you know, engagements in general. Um, but there, there, there are such barriers to making that happen that, um, it just makes everything a, a lot more complicated, unnecessarily, unfortunately. What are the barriers? Yeah. Well, I think one of the biggest barriers is, um, you know, Draper Prison was built, what, in the 60s, in the 50s? Um, you know, so just the infrastructure of some of these facilities, just requ it, it requires resources and it requires, you know, money. And, you know, if I had a couple hundred thousand dollars to be able to say, okay, we've, we've got to use this. So on one level, it is about resources. Um, on another level, I think just philosophically, you know, this idea of punishment just always rubs up against programming. And there are serious concerns about security. And so, you know, I, we are in conversation right now with the Utah Department of Corrections about getting our um, computer labs access to restricted internet. And I think we're making great progress in those conversations. I'm hopeful that we'll be able um, to do remote instruction online in the fall. Um, but there are still a number of, of, I don't wanna say people, I think there's just a culture that is very fearful about the internet. And it's it's really unfortunate because not only is it about providing incarcerated people with you know access to content, for example, uh, we have students in our class who um, are unable to type right now because they've never seen a laptop. You know, and so part of it's not just simply providing access so that people can get access to courses. It's also about digital literacy and the ability to be able to work the equipment that we're all living our lives on. Um, and that can present fear, I think, for security because their ultimate concern is about the safety of the facility. And so, can I, you know, any, I'm gonna jump in here for a second. I, yeah. I because I'll, and I'll say why. Uh, that I understand why uh, there are some very smart people who have committed crimes and giving them the opportunity, as we know, hacking happens all the time. It, then, then they worry about potential 
uh, nefarious activity being able to take place over, uh, you know, through the internet. So how do you kind of mitigate that in the, in the idea that you want to provide educational opportunities, but you also don't want to give them opportunities to do more kind of criminal activity? Well, I think a few things. First, this is already being done in other states. I mean, Washington, all of their community college system is inside prisons, and they've got access to restricted internet. Uh, D.C. Metro Jail now has, you know, iPads with internet restricted access. And so it's not like we would have to reinvent the wheel here. It's absolutely doable. Um, and there are other places that we can look as models to say, here's how we build that infrastructure. I think Excellent. the other thing is that, you know, our students, uh, we have some phenomenal students, and they are very protective of this program. And the idea that they would jeopardize the program um, to do something like hacking, like just isn't, it's not something we have to deal with, quite frankly. Um, you know, I think the our group of students um, do what they can to be able to continue to use the resources. And I think and I get that this might be difficult, but I think it requires a bit of faith in people and their ability. And we would deal with an infraction in exactly the same way that we would deal with an infraction on campus. So if someone on campus decides to do something that they're not supposed to do on the university internet, well, they're going to get reprimanded for that. Yeah. Well, that's what would ha that's what should happen on the inside as well. Well, and I guess that's my frustration is that it's always this fear of what might happen that keeps us from letting the vast majority of people do something we know is of benefit to them. Like we exactly. know, we know educating people, um, we know giving them skills, we know, uh, like you say, uh, giving their minds something good and positive to do. We know all those things help with rehabilitation and, and, and build resilience in people. So the fact that we would not do that because there's this potential problem um, or our fear of some problem, I guess we do this all the time though. I mean, we do it about, we're doing it right now in public about COVID. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, it's true. It's yeah. True. And so I guess I'm saying like, let's let the majority of people who would be respectful and take advantage of the opportunity, let's try it and let's police it. And like you say, then you punish the infraction or you deal with the problems as they come up rather than imagining scenarios that may or may not ever be possible. That's, when that's we come, my uh, right. I want to. Uh, we got to uh, go to the next segment. But uh, when we come back, we'll continue our discussion with uh, Professor Erin Castro. She is the co-director of the University of Utah's Prison Education Project, and you're listening to Voices of Reason. Welcome back to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're speaking with Professor Erin Castro. She is Professor of Higher Education at the University of Utah and co-director of the Utah Prison Education Project. And, uh, you know, I wanted to kind of throw in my little two cents here. I've only been to the prison. So first of all, for those who may not know, the, the Utah State Prison, the main prison, is currently located uh, right at the border of Salt Lake County and Utah County in Bluffdale, Draper. Uh, area, and it'll soon be moved into Salt Lake County, in, uh, just west of Salt Lake City. Uh, I have made one trip out there, and it was when I was working in radio, and I was uh, going to speak to a fellow who had uh, gotten his uh, bachelor's degree while incarcerated. And so I go there, and they walk you around. They don't, you can't just go in and everywhere. 
but I actually go into the guy uh, to a cell where the guy was, and he was uh, looked like he'd been in prison and he'd had a kind of a hard life. He, uh, I ask him as you know, I'm trying to be you know be a tough guy though I had never been anywhere near a prison before. So I asked him what he did, and he said uh, murder. And at that point, I thought to myself, I could run right now, but I don't know where exactly I would get away because if he tried to kill me, I would be done. And he had turns out he had murdered he and another person had murdered a lady, I mean murdered a guy during a drug deal who was wheelchair bound. So he had been uh, he'd done some bad stuff uh, while uh, impacted by drugs. But he's also to uh, Professor Castro's point, an example of what you can do with the time you have if you are willing to work productively. Yeah, and I think your story, Jason, goes to this idea that who's redeemable. And I, yeah. I wonder, Dr. Castro, if you look at um, at some of these uh, scenarios that you're, the students you're working with and the people who are either are supportive of your program or who are saying your program probably doesn't deserve funding or doesn't deserve the support that you need. Um, I just wonder like, about this idea that we have to basically judge because we don't view education as a human right right now, right? So it's not, you have to, you have to do something special to get it. So we also have to judge who's worthy of that, of that access. And I mean, do you see that? And how do you deal with that in your program? Yeah, I mean, we are in a situation where higher education is increasingly um, too costly, particularly for middle-class families, mm -hmm. right? And so yeah. it's not, you know, in our, in our vision, all people have access to affordable, high-quality higher education, including incarcerated people. Yeah. You know, so we're not imagining a particular kind of pathway for incarcerated people that we wouldn't imagine for students on campus. And I know that there's a lot of people who say, oh, you know, incarcerated people shouldn't have access to philosophy. Just, you know, teach them a skill. That's <laughs> that's not what we're doing here. We, we, we don't imagine something different just because mm -hmm. of incarceration status. Um, I think the other thing that we really take seriously is that we don't consider crime of conviction or length of sentence in any of our programming. And so mm -hmm. you can get into our program if you're serving a life sentence, if you're on death row, if you're getting out next week. Um, we don't care. What, what we're interested in is, is do you want to learn and do you want to be part of building this community um, and building a culture of college going inside the prison? Um, I think this idea of deservingness is just, it's partly because I think it hinges on the affordability, the lack of affordability for yes. college and this idea that there's just not enough to go around. And that's just a really unfortunate way of thinking about it. That's that's not going to move us forward. Um, and it's not the most humane way to think about it either. Um, I get that we have to make funding decisions and I get that we have to prioritize certain things over others. And, um, and I understand that providing money to help incarcerated people go to college might not be on the top of everyone's priority list. I understand that. Um, but I do think this is a both and situation. Mm -hmm. We yeah. can fund high quality um, pre-K and kindergarten and make sure that people have um, quality daycare and affordable living. And at the same time, recognize that there are people inside prisons and jails right now that want nothing more than the opportunity to meaningfully engage and to better their lives. Yeah, and I, I hope it's actually an end. There are people out in the world 
who we could keep from going to prison if we gave them better opportunities earlier in their lives, whether that's in high school or, or post high school. Um, Absolutely. Because I think, I mean, when I covered the prison for, I covered corrections for six years and I mean, over and over, I wrote the same story different ways and with different people. And that was that their life had become derailed because of trauma or uh, a lack of opportunities. Mm-hmm. And yeah, people make bad decisions. I've made bad decisions. Luckily, they haven't put me in jail. But I think that to think that and the, we can't come back from that sort of undermines everything that we believe in, whether that's philosophically, politically, or religiously. I think people sort of want to grant that. And one of the people that sort of was most impactful, I went out, I actually went out for a 5K that they ran at the prison um, with an addiction group. Mm-hmm. And I was I was doing what Jason did, like it's just a reporter thing. Like, so what brought you here? Like, what choices did you make so that you, the people reading it, will say, oh, I won't make those choices and I won't end up there, right? Or vice versa, um, I I can feel good about myself because I didn't make those choices when I had similar trauma or whatever. But I uh, I stopped putting their crimes in for that exact reason, that I felt like it separated their experience from my readers. Um, Mm -hmm. And that what they really need to know is that whatever brought you to the place where you're incarcerated, you can come back from that. You can figure out a way out. It doesn't have to define you. Exactly. No, but but you have to have opportunities. Like you said, without opportunity, what chance do you have to to pull yourself out? Right, and I, I... First of all, commend you for not including crime of conviction in stories. It's a it's a struggle that we have all the time with reporters um, who are who are interested in, in kind of learning about the project. So hold on for a second. Can I go? I need to get in there for a second. So why why not? I'm with you, but I, I just I appreciate what you certainly your project yeah. is is very worthy. I, I, but I want to know why it's part of that person's story. Why try to deny that part or somehow act like that doesn't. Uh, have impact on how people might view it, certainly. But at the very least, you can say, if, if I did this, like Amy said, this doesn't have to define you. This doesn't have to mean it derails your life. You can overcome it by taking the opportunities that are presented to you. Sure, if those opportunities exist. And for yes. the vast majority of incarcerated people, they don't. Yes. So I just want to throw that out there. But I also <laughs> think, you know, if someone is going to tell their story... Most of our students probably wouldn't include their crime of conviction. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd talk to you about, you know, maybe how they got into certain situations and maybe what they've been doing in prison since then. But, you know, for so much of what they have to do, they have to focus on the crime of conviction. So when they're going to probation and parole or they're going to see the parole board or they're in their treatment programming or they're in their sentence mandated programming, they are inundated with this. I did this and I have to suffer the consequences of it. And I think part of what the feedback that we receive from our students is that part of why they really appreciate the program is that we're not designing curriculum for them because they're incarcerated. We are teaching courses at the same rigor and at the same level that we do on campus. And it has nothing to do with that status of incarceration. And I think being able to kind of step away from that is a really 
good opportunity mentally, emotionally, intellectually? Well, I think also, let me add to that and say that it allows you to define yourself as something other than your crime. So because you're always going to be Joe Smith, the guy who killed someone in a DUI accident, right? Um, on paper in the system. Um, I think that you you live up to that definition. You, you sort of become, that becomes your box, I guess. And what I found, two things. One is I want people to see that they're more than just one bad decision or a series of bad decisions, right? And so that you can go on and do something different. But I also think that it's separated their experience. If you've committed a murder, most people reading our paper have not committed a murder. And so they're not going to relate to that redemption story as much as if they just talk about getting involved with drugs, um, following uh, and, and doing things with people who are bad for you and dropping out of school. And, you know, the series of bad decisions that led to you committing something as heinous as a murder. And um, I think I, I think we as journalists look at, you know, painting a complete picture and that's part of it. But I just found that in certain stories, I'm, I'm not saying in every story, but in certain stories, I didn't want there to be so much distance between the consumer of the story and the teller of the story because they have more in common than they know. And they, if they keep separating themselves by this murder, then they'll never hear each other. They'll never connect to one another in a substantial way. And that was just my thinking. I'm not saying it's the universal. I don't believe it's right for everyone. I just felt that as a writer who was out there at the prison trying to tell stories authentically, that sometimes the distance between the people consuming them who've never been to prison, never been arrested, never had any contact with the system, that if I wanted them to connect and relate and understand what was happening, I had to, I had to make it, I had to make it a person they would be friends with outside of the prison. You know, I don't know. It just, it's just, that was just my experience. I understand that. Listen, we're going to uh, come back and continue our discussion. We are speaking today with Erin Castro. She's an associate professor of higher education at the University of Utah and co-director of the Utah Prison Education Project. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Welcome back to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today we're speaking with Erin Castro. She's Associate Professor of Higher Ed at the University of Utah and co-director of the university's Utah Prison Education Project. And, uh, you know, we've been speaking about just your, your project and how this works. You, you mentioned, though, that um, one of the, the difficulties in getting people to understand and, and, and appreciate what higher education is do, uh, can do for inmates uh, is uh, getting them to pay for it. And I, I would imagine it's, it's been a struggle for you to kind of address that issue in, in terms of being able to provide more um, resources for uh, the folks you're trying to serve. Yeah, it's a, it's a real barrier. Um, we are a not-for-credit program right now. So we are accredited because we're through the University of Utah, but we are not credit-bearing. And there's only one reason for that. It's because we don't have money for tuition. Um, I think there's there's a mistaken idea that it would just make sense to charge incarcerated people for tuition, but all that would do is replicate the inequities that already exist. Mm -hmm. um, incarcerated people 
already don't make anything, and if they do, it's ma they're making very little. Many are already strapped with debt. Um, and so for us, it's just not an option to, to charge incarcerated people for tuition. And so we take our cue from other um, models throughout the country that um, you know, try to heavily subsidize tuition, working with um, institutions of higher education in the state. Um, and that would be my goal moving forward. You know, we, we never want cost to be a barrier for someone who wants education. And so we supply everything associated with attendance down to markers and pencils and paper to things like laptops and computers. And because we want someone to be able to just show up and have the tools to engage in the way that they want to. You know, in Utah right now, Salt Lake Community College receives ongoing state appropriations to the tune of about 325,000 a year, which may sound like a lot of money, um, but it's not. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't stretch very far um, when trying to serve, uh, you know, the more than 13,000 people who are incarcerated in this state. But I will say that that's a really good sign. The fact that the state has invested that amount of money, um, I think, is something that we can build off of. Um, I, would, I would like to see, as we move forward, more universities come into this work. You know, right now... The University of Utah is, um, we are, we have faculty from across the state volunteering with us. We have folks from Weber and UVU and USU and Westminster. And what I'd really love to see is some institutional support, you know, so bringing the UC schools together um, and saying, hey, let's, let's share some of the, the cost on this because it's meaningful work. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just meaningful for the students inside. I mean, I know I've talked a lot about that, but you know, some of the biggest feedback we get is from faculty who teach for us and from graduate students and undergraduate students who intern with us and talk about the transformative experiences that they have had and how they now understand um, or at least have a better understanding of every time they drive down I-15 of what that prison is and who's in there. Yeah. And, and what that means. And I, I would add it's good for the societies that they're going to go, the neighborhoods, the communities they're going to exit into when 95% of them are released. Um, these people have families. Lots of them have kids. Um, they may have elderly parents that they have to take care of when they get out. And I, I remember doing a, a couple of stories with different inmates about the, the process of transitioning out of prison. And I don't know how anyone makes it out. I'm just no. going to, I won't bore you with the details, but it is, I couldn't make it. I would no. just go back to crime. There's no way I could make it um, based on what they, I couldn't have made it in my life if that had been my start. If at 18, I'd been given $150 and dropped off at a bus stop with nothing and no place to live. I don't know how I would have made it. And that's basically essentially what we do, unless you're lucky enough to get into a, a transitional housing or a, a halfway house. Um, and you don't have family support, I, I just, I don't know. But at least if you had education, your worldview would be bigger. You would know there are options for you that maybe you didn't know when you got into prison. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that, that education goes both ways. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk a lot about how higher, access to higher education in prison reduces recidivism. And yeah. it's a striking reduction. And to me, that's it, like a so what, or not just so what, but yes, of course it does because yes. of all these things. But I also think we can do, we can do the best programming on the inside, 
But if we don't also educate folks who have never stepped foot in a prison, to your point earlier, Amy, mm-hmm. right, who, who maybe don't have an understanding, who won't hire people with a criminal record, who don't want to live next door to them, who don't really believe in rehabilitation, mm-hmm. we've got a lot of work to do then because someone can come out as ready as possible. But, you know, a lot of our former students, they can't get jobs. Um, they, they can't get hired, even though they're wonderful and great and highly qualified. And so I think we've just got a lot of work to do to kind of mend all of this and to bring awareness to people of like the sheer number of people touched by this system is dramatic. And we have to start thinking about how we move in a different direction. Um, Professor, do you think it's a matter of educating people as to that couching it, I guess, as a public safety issue? I mean, we, we care a lot about spending money on police, you know, make, making sure we have enough police officers and enough uh, the ability to enforce our laws. But what if we spent some of that money on making sure that people didn't come in contact with law enforcement? I mean, I know we're not like it's it's, it's not. But if you look at it as a law enforcement issue, then I think um, to me, it becomes way more attractive. Yeah, no, I you know, you're talking to a. A professor of education here. So I'm going to just say, you know, education is part of everything we need to do. But yeah, no, I don't think it's a law enforcement issue, quite frankly. I mean, mm-hmm. if we look at the reasons, you know, why kind of to my points earlier about the culmination of characteristics that are shared among incarcerated people and the challenges to your point about, you know, re-entry, um, investing in other ways that aren't policing and punishment become absolutely necessary. And again, to your point earlier, if there are not viable opportunities for people to thrive and to live the life that they deserve to live, then we're not going to be able to move past this kind of over-reliance on punishment, over-reliance on policing, and quite frankly, over-reliance on incarceration. You know, listen, uh, sadly, we have to uh, bring this to a conclusion, but I want to say that you've educated me, <laughs> which I, I guess is uh, at least I hope that helps you some. But you also <laughs> given me uh, information that I can take forward and, and tell other people, you know, I, I, I recognize the value of considering other people's humanity and giving opportunity to people who otherwise might not get them. And these people in prison, like you said, 95% of them are going to be out on the streets with the rest of us. And the more help we give them so that they can uh, be successful when they get out, that helps us all, not just them. Yeah, and I would just encourage, you know, anybody who's listening, um, we are an all donation-based project. So we receive no funding from the state, no funding from the institution. um, And we have an ongoing wish list of uh, uh, prison-approved um, supplies. So I'd encourage anyone to go to our website. It's Utah Prison Educate or Prison Education Project. Utah.edu, um, and you know also encourage your listeners to become involved. We have a number of community members who volunteer with us, um, who run reading groups, who do computer literacy classes. Um, we really we want to work collaboratively with anyone who wants to be part of this work. Excellent. I want to say thank you to Professor Aaron Castro, uh, who is the co-director and co-founder of the University of Utah's Utah Prison Education Project. Thank you very much for joining us. Join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about our show, please contact us via email at voramed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. 
Our show's Twitter handle is at VOR Podcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast in all the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project.